Hello, this is Jane Sigford, bringing you Views and Voice Above the Noise, a podcast hosted by MASA, Minnesota Association of School Administrators. Today's interview is with Carrie Jo Drewitz, Director of Curriculum, Instruction, and Assessment for the West St. Paul Public Schools, to talk about the work of curriculum and professional development directors. Learning and teaching to me is the business of our business. It's the purpose of schools. The role of curriculum director or director of teaching and learning is less clearly defined, perhaps, than other administrative roles in a district. For example, these positions have different titles in every district, plus the position is ranked differently in the district organizational chart. Some are assistant superintendents or executive directors, or even teachers on special assignment. Some principals even have this role. In addition, in each district, that role has different responsibilities. Some have responsibilities for data management or assessment and or technology implementation, English as a second language, gifted and talented services, in addition to supervising curricular adoptions and ongoing professional developments. In some districts, the role has oversight of other personnel. Unlike the principalship or superintendency, there is no particular license required. Some curriculum positions require an administrative license because that person may supervise others, including principals. Some do not require such a license. In some districts, the persons in the role change quickly because staff become principals, superintendents, or return to the classroom. We educators are about the job of facilitating and creating learning. In a previous podcast, I discussed deeper learning, that learning which is engaging, linked to real life, challenging, and thought-provoking. Unfortunately, that's not the norm. We've become so paralyzed by the accountability mentality that we've concentrated on coverage of material, not necessarily the learning of it. This focus has changed the emphasis for the curriculum and instruction roles. Michael Fullen, former Dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education of the University of Toronto and currently Global Leadership Director of New Pedagogies for Deep Learning and a worldwide authority on educational reform, recently published a book called Deep Learning. He found that certain environments have several components that are conducive to facilitating deeper learning. The four components are, one, physical learning environments which facilitate multiple ways of learning, two, learning partnerships or relationships with the external communities, three, digital tools that are leveraged intelligently and intentionally, and four, the incorporation of a wide variety of effective pedagogical practices. Of the four, in this accountability climate, Fullen believes we have neglected pedagogical practices the most. With the advent of No Child Left Behind and subsequent ESSA and so on, we have become so concerned with standards, standardized tests, collecting, monitoring, interpreting, and reporting data that we have relegated pedagogy to the background. I wanted to hear the perspective of a current curriculum and instruction leader who was a deeper teacher herself and is now the leader of such endeavors in a district. Carrie Jo was one of the several I hope to interview over time. Carrie Jo Drewitz has been in her current position for seven years and had other similar positions beforehand. She's got the responsibility for curriculum, professional development, and assessment. The role demands knowledge about the stuff of what is taught, 
plus knowledge of the developmental needs of students and adults, data collection and management, and use of digital tools. Plus, as in many administrative jobs, she needs to have effective process skills for effective group facilitation, consensus building, and coordination across levels and departments in the district. As Carrie Jo would tell you, it's an exciting and very rewarding job because the work makes a difference in the lives of teachers, students, and families. Hopefully, it is helping to make deeper learning happen. Let's hear how Carrie Jo got to where she is today. I went to college and thought I wanted to be an engineer. I was really fortunate. I got to go to a college that allowed you to work and go to school every other semester. I got to be a chemical engineer for GE Plastics for Mobile Oil. That was at Purdue? Uh, yep, I was at Purdue. To big name companies, like companies I had dreamed of as this little town girl that worried about. This is, that wasn't my world, like right, that was my dream, is to work for somebody like. I got to experience life as an engineer. I worked in an environmental department. I worked in a plant. I did uh, things you have to do for EPA. Like, I got to really experience a wide variety of, of pieces. It wasn't for me. What was missing for me was this love of learning and really kind of guiding others. If I looked back at my teen years, it was teaching Sunday school. It was babysitting. It was always interacting with others that I really liked. Purdue, it was really easy to get a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry and get a teaching license. So that's what I did. I think at my heart, I would have been an elementary teacher. That's what I really wanted to do, but it meant I had to start over. And at 21, I didn't want to start over. I was still going to be able to get out of school in five years and have a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry, and then if I didn't like teaching, and go to industry, right? Like, that was my plan. I came to Minnesota, and unfortunately, Minnesota, you had to be a double major in Chemistry and Physics to get a teaching license because at the time you could only get a physical science license and I had a chemistry degree, which wasn't enough. But fortunately, Purdue was savvy enough to say, hey, we're gonna tell them that your engineering classes are just like physics, it's thermodynamics, it's those things. And so we were able through a process with the college to get them to count that as physics. And then I was able to get the physical science license. But I knew in my heart, I didn't ever wanna teach physics. I got my first teaching job. I was teaching physical science and that wasn't it wasn't my thing and my rationale for that is like I don't necessarily understand how things work I can't fix things and I try to defy the laws of physics so for me to teach the laws when I like to defy them just really wasn't working it fits you though <laughs> it, it does it does and chemistry was chemistry was really really my passion and mostly because it was a puzzle it's something you couldn't see but you could explain for me Biology and physics were hard for me, but chemistry helped me understand why things were the way that they were. It helped you explain things like, why did I have to wear sunscreen? Why did you care about what was in your water or where you were drinking your water from? Or why did you want to recycle? Like, there were just things that made sense to me came from chemistry. Well, I had this opportunity to apply for a chemistry position. I was at a high school and landed my dream job. They, there was a teacher that was going to retire that had this passion for this curriculum called Chemistry in the Community, which was teaching high school kids basically chemistry that maybe didn't want to major in, in science in college but, but needed it, and it, that fit me. I got to do what I loved. I got to teach the subject that I loved, but I didn't feel the pressure of I had to meet certain standards or I had to teach all of this content because there was a little bit of flexibility in, you know, it's a more important what you get out of it, not the content that I teach you. 
because I knew that wherever they were going to end up going to school or go to college or not go to college, that they were going to get skills that they needed. I would be surprised when I would have a graduate that would leave Wyzetta that was in my class that would end up becoming the nurse or becoming the chemist because they were in my class because they hated science and they had bad experiences with it before they got to me. It was interesting. I met two students after they had got out of college and I said, I'm surprised. You're a chemist. Yeah, you ignited a passion in me. And I'm like, you're kidding me, right? Like you were in my class and you hated this. Uh, or I thought that's, I, I thought that you hated it. And that's really how I approached the, the content that I taught. But while I was teaching, and it was even just in my first five years, I noticed all of my colleagues around me constantly complaining about the bureaucracy of schools and constantly being frustrated with graduation standards or what they had to teach or the test that was coming. I listened to them complain, and my nature is a fixer. I said, well, why doesn't somebody try to do something about it rather than complain about it? what What can you do about it? So I took a chance and I applied for a job as a teacher on special assignment, half time. I mean, I remember I was not yet 30 and I knew the candidates that I was up against, but I had a, a mentor, a person that I had met that had said, you should just apply. And so I did. And I still remember getting the phone call. I'm standing in my chemistry classroom and Jane Sigford's on the phone saying, I want to offer you the job. And I'm like, are you sure? me like there were other there's older candidates i'm not 30 like i don't have the experience and then you said to me don't you want the job like yeah i want the job but are you crazy what i learned in that experience is that ignited my passion i got to do elementary science i got to bring elementary science to life for kids unfortunately in the age that we live elementary school is about reading and math Science is the fun part, but science is also the part that elementary teachers aren't always really excited to teach because it's a content they don't necessarily understand. And how do you bring it to the level of sometimes a five-year-old or a nine-year-old? And how do you handle those inquisitive questions? Because oftentimes as teachers, we feel we have to be, we have to hold all the knowledge and give all of the knowledge. And if someone asks us a question that we don't know the answer to, too often we fear that. And they also fear not making it in math and reading, right? And so there's that that dichotomy. And so I began doing some research, finding research that talked about how writing improved reading. And that's where I found my in. And that's where I started a whole push with science notebooks and getting kids, getting teachers to do science because kids would write about science and sharing with them their research on how that then improves reading. And I had a wonderful opportunity by doing that and that work expanding across the elementary schools in the district, then being able to go travel the company or travel the the country and share that passion in Texas, share that passion in California, share that passion in other districts in, in Minnesota, where that was one of the ways at the time in the early 2000s that people were finding time for science was to incorporate writing into science and, and bringing that to life. That's where my tra- trajectory just changed. Like I didn't imagine I would leave the classroom. I didn't imagine that I would really set science behind, but that's where I then began to seek out leadership roles and change. And I applied to get a principal's license, not because I wanted to be a principal, but I wanted to continue in this path of, of curriculum. And, and I was also fascinated by technology. So throughout all of that, maybe the part that's missing in that story is that 
I was always the one going first. I had the first smart board. I am confident I was the first teacher in the high school to record a lesson that got played when a sub was there. I remember coming back and my kids going, it was so weird. Your voice was coming out of the ceiling and we didn't know what to do. It was like you were here. And I'm like, yeah, that, that was the point. And I really pushed that. And I pushed my kids in trying to embrace that as well. So I tried to do things that hadn't yet been done. For instance, one of my favorite things that I did is my final was create a public service announcement. Anything you want, you create a public service announcement and that's your final. And they're like, huh? And I'm like, nope, really. And uh, we spent time doing that. And I replaced written lab reports with video lab reports. I want you to video what you're doing and explain to me what's happening. What do you see happening? It needs to be real life is what I try to bring into assignments while balancing it with there was some resistance from my kids about that's not how you do school. That's not how we've been taught. Um, and that's something that I really had to work with them to get them to trust me to try because it felt different. It felt vulnerable. Like, well, what's my grade going to be on? Is it, can I do the technology or is it, can I show you what I know? I actually want you to tell me what you know. Not, I'm not giving you an ABCD answer. And so there was a, a lot of back and forth I had to do with my students to get them to buy in into that work. From there, got a principal's license and then began trying to figure out where, where did I want to land. Um, I worked in research assessment and accountability, which is great, but that wasn't getting at the heart of my passion, which is getting into classrooms and helping teachers be better at what they do. So I took a role as director of professional development, which really did help me do that, but it was missing a little bit of the curriculum lens because I was in a really big district where it was kind of off in silos. It really landed in my mind, the perfect job. I found a school district with one high school, two middle schools and five elementaries in a smaller suburban district with some disparities in terms of our free and reduced lunch and have some ethnic diversity. And I feel like I'm able to definitely influence and make a difference because it's small. You know, I, I am in teachers' classrooms. I know teachers' names. And part of that is because of the size of the district that I'm able to work in. I asked Carrie Jo what professional development was top priority right now. She talked about two global topics, cultural competence and personalized learning. What you will hear embedded in those two big topics are other pedagogical strategies they are working on, such as how to listen to what kids are really saying, when to use and when not to use whole group instruction, classroom management strategies when different groups are doing different things, offering more voice and choice for students, how to set expectations and model desired behaviors, plus the creation and use of flexible learning environments. There are two big pieces. Um, so one, you know, it's going to be a term everybody's using. It's, it's cultural competence. How do, how do we bring that into instructional practice? But what I want to say about that is I think we're often looking for the quick fix. How can I fix the achievement gap? The trouble in that is you can't fix something you don't understand. I'm, I'm a white woman. I may have a special needs son that makes me different and have a different perspective and I may be divorced and that adds another perspective, but I don't know what it's like to live in a culture that's not dominant. That is something that I think is hard for a lot of educators because many of us live in that, in that world. And 
What we're really trying to focus on in our professional development is understanding simply ways of being in those ways of being what's dominant and then what does that mean and so i'm gonna i'll give you an example communication styles well there's lots of different ways that people communicate but we can we can kind of summarize them or categorize them into into three things there's pausers those that maybe need to think they might need process time they might need some time to reflect there's pacers that can just go back and forth in a conversation Uh, they can process out loud and then there's overlappers who don't always let you finish what you're thinking because they're so excited to jump in. If we think about that, those, those three, there's not one that's right and there's not one that's wrong, but there's one that's definitely dominant. There's one that's definitely favored in a classroom. Being able to recognize first, where do I fit in that? How do students in my classroom feel that may not have that dominant communication style? And how am I giving voice to those other pieces. How do I allow overlappers to engage in conversation in my classroom? Am I constantly telling them to stop talking, like to to stop interrupting, right? And and to really be mindful, first of all, of who am I and who are the students in my classroom? And how do I let them show up in the ways that they are so that we can provide that instruction? Do you do much in helping teachers understand what they do because a lot of teachers talk a lot and they don't listen too well? Yeah. How do you deal with that? We don't do as much as we would like. One strategy that we use particularly with our new teachers when they come in is um, their mentor does an observation for them where they monitor who does the talking. And they actually chart it. Who's doing the talking? Who are you calling on? So you, you not only look at the percent that's teacher and student, but you look at the percent that's which students, which students are, are not talking. While we're focused on this equity, we've been on over a five-year journey of really trying to get to this place and personalized learning is a buzzword, and I know it's a buzzword, but that has been the work uh, that we've been up to and probably the part that's most nearest and dearest to my heart. Is that number two for your professional that, That's number two. That's been, that's been ongoing. The challenge with personalized learning is I don't want to define it as one thing. Personalized learning is using best practice instructional strategies to meet the needs of kids. From my secondary brain, where I look back on the way in which I taught, even though I provided opportunities for students to show me what they know or approach things differently, where I failed them is in too much of this whole group instruction. You all need it. There's no way you have it. I didn't necessarily always assess whether you knew it before I got there. And really thinking about Figuring out and understanding what do my students know before I teach it because I don't need to be the holder of all knowledge to give it to them. So do your teachers now do more formative assessment than you wish you had done? Oh, for sure. Not, o- not only in more formative assessment, but offering students more voice and choice in what they're doing. When I go into a classroom, uh, one of the things that I'm looking for, besides who's doing the talking, is, and this is kind of a, I'll have a conversation with the teacher. Let's say I walk in and there's a whole group lesson. My question and reflection to the teacher is, how do you know that everybody needed that whole group lesson? Some of them have never thought about the question. 
right? Because it's just, it's the way you did school. There's others that recognize, but they don't know what to do to manage the rest of the class, right? Because let's be honest, if I want to take a small group of students and work with them, what is the, what is the rest of the class doing? You enter into a whole new realm of classroom management. One of the big things we've learned with our personalized learning work is that the things people jump to the first is, let's do stations, right? Well, stations have been around long for a long time. Uh, look at Daily Five. Stations are there. It's not about doing stations, it's about what you're doing in each one. And do kids know what they need to do? And are, do kids have any voice and choice in that? And so we've really had to focus on how do you provide those other opportunities for students when you're working with a small group of kids? And then how are you training them to do what you want them to do? How are you setting the expect expectations? How are you modeling? How are you collectively as a class? And so we do a lot of sharing of best practices around classroom management, setting expectations. We're really pushing flexible furniture and flexible classrooms. We're in the midst of a construction project and we're redesigning um, all of our elementary schools. So there's two common spaces in every elementary school. The common space is about the size of two classrooms with no walls or three classrooms that's shared between first and second grade and third and fourth grade with the idea that classrooms spill out. And, and really trying to promote that we don't all have to be, it's not like an airplane. We don't all have to face forward. We don't all have to have our seatbelts on and our technology turned off. You got kids sitting on the floor in a mean bag. You got kids sitting underneath the desk. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. Curriculum leaders are tasked with assessing curriculum offerings and updating the district materials and practices. This is a labor-intense, multi-year process of reviewing, assessing results, examination of materials, implementation, and reassessing effectiveness. You will hear Carrie Jo talk about the interplay of reading and writing and reading with success in science and math. In addition, educators have to examine the socio-emotional needs of students because we know that kids under stress do not learn as quickly or as well as someone who is secure emotionally. So our big curricular push right now is language arts. With our heavy emphasis right now is on K-4. So we did a review of K-4 last year, and there's some research that has come out to talk a little bit about guided reading. What we're finding is that while guided reading and its intention is having kids read in small groups at a specific level with a teacher, it's holding some kids back. Kids aren't being challenged to, to stretch themselves. The big shift that that people will see in our, particularly 3-4, is moving to one-on-one -on -one conferencing with kids. The other thing that they'll see is our previous curriculum did not emphasize phonics instruction enough in K and 1. So we have completely revamped all of our literacy screeners, our intervention model. We're piloting, we're, we're calling it, not, we're not piloting, wrong word. We have implementation teams implementing language arts, and I think this is a brilliant idea that my elementary curriculum uh, coordinator came up with after thinking about some other models we used in that we have five elementary schools. So I have five K teams, five one, five two. 
we took two teams at every grade level and they're the only ones doing the new implementation. They're the six to eight teachers going first. They're the ones implementing, they're the ones developing the common formative assessments, they're the ones that are trying everything out. They got in-depth extra training over the summer. They've developed the first scope and sequence and will iterate on it based on their experience and then they will train the remaining three teams so that we'll do a full implementation next year. So what are you doing in language arts at the high school? Language arts at the high school, the, the big, so the big, here's the big things we're seeing. First is making sure students can see themselves in the text they're reading. This is probably not politically correct, but sometimes our textbooks are having them read only about dead white guys. And so really looking at the diversity of text that we're providing for students. The other thing that we're seeing is that the writing that our 7th and 8th grade students can do, we're pleased with. The writing that we're able to see out of our ninth grade students isn't at the same level. Why is that, do you think? Because in 7th and 8th grade, you get to write about what you want. You get to write about what you chose to read. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in ninth grade, you're writing about something you read and you were told what you had to read and you didn't read it. Particularly in, we have a, a tracked ninth grade option and advanced in a, a general class. And, and we, we find that more often in the general classes. We're struggling to get kids to write. Well, we're struggling to get them to write because they're not reading. What about at the middle school? You talked about writing. What else are you doing at the middle school? So first, our middle schools are unique and they're 5'8". Our middle school is unique, and it's got it's got pros and cons, but we have a 5-6 schedule and a 7-8 schedule. Okay. Four years ago, we increased the amount of time in the four core areas by going to 65, 465-minute classes. The fifth class is 54 minutes, so that it can be on the schedule with 7th and 8th grade, and, and kids go to their specialists, their art, their FIAD, their music. 7 and 8 on a 6-period day, so it's a little bit of a nuance. Our focus has particularly been on reading and math. When I started a while ago, uh, seven years ago, you know, our math drop that we saw from elementary to middle school happened, just like it does everywhere, but it was more profound. We have implemented a new math curriculum and worked really, really hard to have a consistent scope and sequence across our middle schools and then aligned our high school offerings at the middle school and removed the gatekeeping so that any student can opt into the ninth grade algebra equivalent class in the middle school. We're well into that implementation. Our, our scores have come up and now they're flat. So now we're taking a look at that. The state's actually decreased 5% as a state in math. There's, you know, Okay. You know, some, some questions around why and some speculation that textbooks aren't written for Minnesota and Common Core and all of that. But reading is, we have reading intervention at one middle school and not the other. Um, so we're looking at ways through that. We're, we saw, our one middle school saw double-digit gains in fifth grade last year and a 6% in, um, improvement in MCA alone in reading. Um, so they have a, a really strong focus at both middle schools actually on reading. If, if reading improves, math and science improve. Mm -hmm. Is kind of the the philosophy behind uh, behind that. But those are their that's their their big work from a content per, content perspective. They're also really working on 
they're both PBIS schools and they've mm-hmm. implemented those systems over the past couple of years, you know, we're seeing the social emotional needs really on the rise and, and really being something that, that that's kind of our next step. What are you doing on the that. whole mental health training issue or awareness? So each site's been really kind of picked its focus, you know, trauma-informed instruction. We increased our counseling staff at our middle schools a couple of years ago with the counselor grant. CompEd has been used to help increase counselors at one of the other, one of the middle schools. But it's, it's, it's a need. The responsibilities of curriculum directors and of teachers have changed greatly in the past 10 to 15 years. When Carrie Jo talked about these changes, you will hear a testament to the accountability mindset that Michael Fullen has described. From a state perspective, we just keep getting more mandates of things that we have to <laughs> monitor and report on. The world's best workforce is the, is the plan we have to now write. That falls at least generally on curriculum directors to oversee, but there's a goal and it makes sense to put everything in it. Put everything in it. You know, your world's best workforce plan has to look at equitable staffing. Your world's best workforce has to include, your plan has to include your gifted and talented identification criteria, your great acceleration. It has to include a review of ATPPS. It has to include a review of staff development. Um, so it's great in that there's like less of these little individual reports, but then there's all of this information that you're trying to get into one spot and then be able to communicate out or monitor and evaluate and I would say the biggest piece that's changed in my role is the amount of monitor and evaluate is like the word. We have to monitor and evaluate everything. And that's good. That's a, that's a good practice, right? If you're going to implement something, implement it with fidelity. But it's it's been a lot in the, the number of changes that have occurred, you know, in the last five years or big projects that we've had to pick up from you know, writing a world's best workforce plan to uh, teacher evaluation, either identifying your own teacher development and evaluation model or adopting the state's model and then implementing that in whatever flavor it looks like. And then in all of that, my biggest job is trying to create efficiencies for staff that have to also you know, do that. So like, right, so let's use teacher evaluation for an example. What does the teacher actually have to do as part of that system? What does the principal actually have to do as part of that system? And how is that system creating efficiencies or more work? So this this year or this summer, I took on this idea and said, you're spending too much time writing evaluation, you know, having to do all of these parts. So we're going to implement a new one that's going to create efficiencies. You, We have to find ways to be able to help teachers and principals decipher, decipher data. So what's the data system that we have that they're able to use? We have to find systems that allow teachers to get instant information. Yes, they can formatively assess students, but if they have to look through 180 pieces of paper, that's not always the best way to do it. I feel like I'm constantly looking for ways for things to be more efficient for teachers so they can have that just-in-time information and make their decisions so they can move forward. In all honesty, all the monitoring and evaluations, has it improved learning? That's a great question. I definitely think in places it's helped us become better. But the things you've talked about for me are adult behaviors. I know they are. That's very, very true. And these are not kid behaviors. Mm -mm. 
Throughout her tenure, Carrie Jo has changed her job in that the curriculum review process has become more intense. Also, the professional development has become more embedded and over time. So our professional development, we've we tried to be more systematic. Systematic in the lens of what do we all need to do to get better? Uh, and really be intentional about, yes, there are individual site needs, but globally we all know there's an achievement gap. Do we have similar needs across the sites as to what we need to solve that? Our, the last two years, we've had district-wide priorities. And so our professional development for elementary last year was on closely responsive student engagement strategies in the classroom. And for secondary, it was using daily assessment to inform instruction. Mm-hmm. And so collaboratively, as elementary and as middle school, high schools, we came together for that professional development, sharing both, both best practice and then digging deeper into each of those topics. And our equity priority is the same way. Our equity priority, it's 28 hours. We're all, we're all digging into the, the same content. We're doing it as sites, but the general outcomes are similar. So it's, it's nuanced for what you need, but all of that work from PD also has to be pervasive in that it's gotta be in everything. We don't just do one-shot wonders in PD. It's not just today. The intention is is that you take what you are learning and you take it back not only to your classroom, but you take it into your PLC conversations, which we call collaborative teams, and that it's an ongoing thing. You should be talking about what we did in August. You should have talked about it today because it was a collaborative team day. Do you keep the same goals for more than a year? We have to have five goals because World's Best Workforce says we have to have five goals, right? So there's always for PD? A, for our overarching academic achievement. Our PD goals, this year, while the focus is on equity, we're still doing it through the lens of student engagement and using daily assessment to inform instruction, right? And so we're, we're trying to put another, put another lens on it. But I'll be honest, in the last three years, so this year it's around equity, but keeping that lens on student engagement and daily assessment. Last year it was daily assessment and student engagement. The year before that, it was on math implementation. And through that math inf- implementation, you talk about student engagement and best practices and personalized learning. We have kept personalized learning as a five-year professional development goal, but we've been intentional about we're taking small groups of teachers. So we're now at 190 staff have completed this 24-hour 24 24-hour 24 set of training over time, and they've been regularly engaged in conversations, and they've been on learning walks in other buildings across the district. And so that's been a long range kind of goal. We've done the same thing with four years ago, we adopted a new learning management system. So Canvas placed a plethora of systems that we had. And what we did in the implementation of that is did a three-year opt-in model. You have three years to choose to use this. And on the third year, if you're not, we're going to set minimums and you have to. And so that was last year for us, but we provided summer training options we have coaches in every stipend coaches in every building that support the use of that but the whole premise of it was not about this is how you use canvas it's about here's how you can personalize your learning with this tool how can you bring kids mastery paths how can you bring students experiences that look different than what you were doing before what do you see as changes for curriculum leaders in your area and in the state has there been changes 
during your tenure in your role? I don't know if I would say necessarily significant changes. What uh, what I see happening is it's people in, in curriculum positions wear so many hats and they're so incredibly busy that it's so hard to have a network. Because I also do assessment, right? I get to be part of this great assessment group, Minnesota assessment group. It's called MAG. It's been around for a really long it time. Does. Yeah, she does. And if I have a question about assessment, I can send it out to that list and I will get multiple responses by the end of the day. And I really, really appreciate that from curriculum directors that doesn't exist, but it's I really think it's because we're all so incredibly busy. That's not to say assessment people aren't, but it's just so hard, I think, to collaborate. Do you also think that the those roles are so different in every district, yep. plus which people come and go in those positions yeah. more quickly, I think, than in, a set, yeah. in the assessment? Is yeah, that, do you I, I, agree? I agree. I agree. And I don't know that it's different in my job, but you mentioned technology. Mm-hmm. Something that is imperative is any curriculum director, in my opinion, has to collaborate with technology today. You need to be best friends with the, with the technology director or the person in charge of technology. And at the same time, you better be best friends with whoever supports special education and English as a second language. Because if you are making general-led decisions without involving those people, you're making a mistake. You forgot early childhood. And early childhood. You get the gamut. I don't know if it's the change in my work, but it is the intentionality in my work. That we're really, 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 really trying to not forget each other and to include each other in that. So, you know, we're looking at graduation requirements. I've got to review a policy, and I have the director of special ed. I have the high school principal. I have the middle school principal in there as well. And I have the assistant superintendent, and I, you know, and I have our career and college guy in there but you have to make sure that you've got all of those people at the table because they have things to contribute you can't possibly think of because you can't know it all and you shouldn't try earlier i talked about michael fullen's four components of an environment which facilitates deeper learning several districts in our state have become part of the center for advanced professional studies or caps to provide juniors and seniors an opportunity to have authentic career experiences in partnership with local businesses. This program is what Fullen calls learning partnerships. Not only does West St. Paul collaborate with local businesses, but also with high schools from two other districts to provide this opportunity. The programs are multidisciplinary and the actual types of partnerships may vary from district to district depending on the focus of the community involved. Let's hear from Carrie Joe about their CAPS program. A few years ago, uh, well, our strategic plan identified that we want to explore career pathways. What did that mean? Well, we actually um, hired someone to lead up that work. When I say we, it was a tri-district initiative. So South St. Paul, Inver Grove Heights, and West St. Paul. Ben Cush has just, he's, he's been the lead for that. And he came from Shakopee where he was doing uh, that work there. And the idea was, well, how are we going to do pathways and what are they going to look like? And the idea was we're three high schools, three small high schools that you can't just keep adding more opportunities because kids aren't signing up in droves of 33 to really support your FTE a lot, you know, your FTE. Um, so what can we do? But we actually looked at different models for uh, really across the U.S., you know, 
we looked at we went to Nashville and we looked at academies and then we went to Blue Valley School District in uh, Overland Park, Kansas, mm-hmm. and looked at CAPS. We looked close to home at what was being done here. It really landed on, you know, CAPS might be the place to get some traction, to, to just get started. We had a unique opportunity in that the Vikings training facility was going in. That really became our first target of how can we start a partnership? The Vikings training facility is in Egan. It's in our school boundary. They have relationships with multiple school districts, but that's kind of how that began. And the idea of a healthcare careers class was born out of that partnership. At the same time, we also had been working with business partners in the community because it's, we also started a ninth grade class called Warrior Seminar that all students take with the idea of really setting them off and preparing them not only for high school but also for college and career. So it's a class that meets every other day all year long that's really focused on those pillars of college, career, individual skills, habits of mind is what we really call it, also making sure that they're set up for success at high school. Through that work and those partnerships, we then also built a relationship with the North American Trailer who said, hey, we need people in this industry, we want to start a class too. And so that's where the idea of CAPS was born. Last year we offered two classes, a transportation and technologies class, and then a healthcare uh, careers class. Then we expanded it to two two additional offerings, but only one's running based on enrollment this year. And what's the new one? Business. That transportation technology, so what kind of a credit do the kids get now? Um, So they get a, a... an elective credit for the transportation part of it, and then English. English. All three courses have English 12. Okay, so they're all 12th grade classes. Yeah, we do have some juniors that take them, and they take English 12, and then if they're a senior at their home school, they'll take English 11. Okay, so they're all English plus an elective. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you've had good luck, really excited about doing this? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I I would say that, you know, particularly in the transportation, you get some non traditional students that are really talking about feeling successful for the first time. We had a, um, a showcase, um, we actually had it here in this building where kids got to talk about their experiences and just to see some of them light up. But being excited to go to school, statistically we're not able to track it, but say, you know, was their attendance better because they had that opportunity, you know, at school because we, we set some expectations around that. I do think it really, it did help some. You know, the healthcare careers, Class really afforded some opportunities to some kids that are really thinking medical, you know, to really kind of get their foot in the door and and kind of see that. But, you know, the idea with this is, is to not focus on uh, only the trades or to not focus only on something that people might say is more professional. It's really to try to offer students opportunities in areas where we know they're high demand. You know, so we spent time looking at what are, where are the high demand fields that we need people in and try to get exposure to them. So when we think healthcare career fields, I mean, it runs the gamut. I mean, it, you could even be someone in marketing in the healthcare field. It, it doesn't have to be what we traditionally might think of as a doctor or a nurse. Just like transportation doesn't have to be the mechanic or the driver. It could also be marketing and sales. But just to hear kids talk about when they learn technical writing and you're hearing from it from industry partner coming in and saying, this is why you need to know it. It gives just a whole nother 
sense of, oh, this is important. This is why. So how did you find the teachers to do that? Uh, we found those that were willing. Open to anybody, anybody that, that wanted to. And uh, we have our transportation careers. The transportation teacher did this in another state before he came mm. to Minnesota. The teacher teaching English is... Um, certified English and a counselor, like it's, and she's a CTE license. Like this is right up there. We'll also be like, it's their passion. It's hard to find people with CTE licenses. Isn't yes. It? Yes. Are you done expanding that program? Not yet. We don't intend to or add any classes for 2021. We want to try to have all classes run in 1920. So the way that we set it up is because it's a partnership between the three districts is there's 10 seats in each class for each high school. Healthcare, we turn kids away. Yeah. So there's an application-based process, we turn <laughs> kids away. We've talked about, can we find a way to run it you know, morning and afternoon? It's just our schedules don't allow it. We're on very different schedules in terms of times. Like we don't start and end at the same time. The uh, transportation uh, you know, and, and business, we're running them under what we'd like to run them under. We've, we've got to create some demand or we need to understand what's preventing kids from taking them and see what, if there's things that we can do to adjust. So students for us are out the last three hours of the day. The other two high schools are on six period days, so they're out the last two. And so we know part of the conflict is, is what are the grad requirements and how many classes do I have to take or what do I want to take? And then how do I fit this in? Um, we're actually in conversations with DCTC or Dakota County Technical College to try to do some concurrent enrollment where we are looking so well caps may not ex expand we really would like to try to offer a math for the trades class that we would call an equivalent for the algebra 2 requirement for seniors we, we see that as a high area of need and then there's some interest in looking at we have a we have a strong art teacher that's got some strong marketing and design background um, that we're looking at trying to expand and do some concurrent enrollment requirements. What do you see as issues in the future? I don't see the achievement gap going away. Got to figure it out. I had shared some readings about deeper learning with Carrie Jo and was very interested in her personal experience as a teacher and now as a curriculum leader with that concept. There were a lot of things that I did in my classroom as a teacher that were not what my colleagues were doing. And I was fortunate that I didn't have, I didn't have to defend what I did because I had the autonomy to do what I was doing because I wasn't teaching probably what everybody thought was a high stakes class. There were assumptions made about the kids that took my class that they didn't necessarily need the content knowledge. Like I didn't need to drive home the content knowledge for them to be successful adults. I had freedom in that. I had autonomy in that. That's what excited the passion and, and made it more exciting. But as I read about deeper learning, I'm like, yeah, but I didn't get to the point that I necessarily always wanted to get to. Right? There were times where I was still the person standing in front, feeling like I had to tell you the information to get you where I wanted you to go. I didn't ask them what they knew ahead of time. I didn't... I didn't really push this whole concept of interdisciplinary. Why is it always just about science? Like, right, yeah, it included writing. Yeah, it included technology. But did I get into 
some of the political nature of it in the same way that I could have, right? So tell me again the two questions you started out your class with. I don't care if you know the, the chemical symbol for sodium or calcium when you leave my class. I want you to know two things when you leave. I want you to be able to tell me why you should wear sunscreen. And I want you to tell me, uh, I want you to be able to read an article and know whether you should question its validity or not. Like, what's its source, where it's coming from, like, and, 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 and that article, I want it to be in a science topic, but I, I, want, I want you to have that skill. That's a political question. Yeah, yeah it is, I suppose. That's a very political yeah. question. It's also very uh, engaging in the community question. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, that's what I posted. As I, as I looked at this, like, you always wish you would have done more. You always wish you would have done things. You would have done things differently. And some things that I have seen since I've done this, right, like now that I, I get to lead this professional up, there's all these things I wish I would have tried that I wish I would have done that I think could have helped more kids. Belief for schools and changing them is that we really need to change the accountability the, the conversation from accountability to be about learning and to re-emphasize pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And I hear you doing some of that. You're really trying to emphasize the pedagogy, but you're still very cognizant of the measurement. Because I still got to go to the board to tell them about it. And uh, part of the role, I think, of superintendents is that we're going to have to change that conversation. Yeah. So boards and our communities understand that there are different ways of accountability besides NCAs. So that is, that is a great point. I worked on a board report last night trying to describe what I think is the great work of personalized learning in the last five years and the changes that I've seen in individual teacher classrooms, like the changes that I know are occurring. I can't for the life of me figure out how to measure it. I want to tell you the story, but I don't have stats. I can't tell you that what that teacher is doing is going to increase that MCA proficiency, but I guarantee you that student has having deeper learning. What a great comment to end my interview with Carrie Jo. We heard about the energy that she spends on monitoring and compliance in this culture of accountability, yet Carrie Jo and many others are trying to change the conversation to be about deeper and more intentional pedagogy and deeper and more effective learning for students. This is Jane Sigford signing off. Again, my email is jlsigford at comcast.net. I leave you with a quote which supports deeper learning from, believe it or not, Ben Franklin. Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I learn. Thanks for listening.